listening to Pregnancy Uncut, a new podcast dedicated to telling the untold and unspoken stories of pregnancy complications. We are your hosts, Drs. Alex Umbers and Cara Thompson. Pregnancy Uncut acknowledges the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land with which we record this. A special welcome to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, especially the mothers, daughters, sisters and aunties. Content warning, heads up guys, this podcast contains materials on pregnancy loss and complications and it may be confronting. Hi Alex. Cara, hello. Who are we hearing from today? Today I am chatting to Portia, who is both a patient and also someone with lived experience of a fascinating story of her journey as someone in a larger body trying to navigate our incredibly weight-biased medical system. Yeah, Cara, I really can't wait to hear Portia's story of navigating through this world of infertility and living in a larger body because... We all know that the healthcare system is so slow to catch up with the right language and the right care and provide health equality for people who have specific needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that I really learned and got out of chatting to Portia is that understanding that it's not necessarily the physical condition that is causing harm or adding a risk or adding a layer of complexity to someone's medical care, it's often actually just the bias that we bring to those interactions and we bring to what we're prepared to offer as medical practitioners. And that power that we have, especially in an area like fertility, where, you know, is there anything, you know, more emotive and more all-consuming to people when they decide they want to have a baby and they they need medical assistance to do so. And that power that we potentially have as medical practitioners to say, treatment for you, treatment not for you on sometimes extremely arbitrary lines is, is something that we really need to sit back and acknowledge and question whether we're using that power in a safe and equitable way. Yeah. I think one huge bias in our healthcare system is looking beyond the numbers. You know, health is so much more than your body mass index. It's your behaviors. It's how you're able to take care of yourself, how well or safe you feel coming into a healthcare space. And I think there's a lot to be said for us as providers of healthcare in pregnancy as going beyond those numbers and really, you know, exploring ways to include everyone and create a safe space. Yeah, absolutely. And Portia has got a foot in both camps. She's a GP herself and she's got a incredible story to share with us. Let's dive in, shall we? Love to. Portia, welcome to Pregnancy Uncut. Hi, Cara. It's a pleasure to be here. Portia, you're a general practitioner. What led you to specialising in general practice? Part of it, I think, was the pretty classical story that general practice is considered to be a bit more uh, lifestyle friendly. And um, I found that when I was doing my earlier training years in hospital that I kind of was just interested in too many of the subspecialties. And I knew that I wouldn't really be able to combine all of those interests if I specialized into a non-GP specialty, whereas in general practice, there's the scope to do all of the kinds of things that a doctor can do. 
Portia, what is H-A-E-S or health at every size? Yes. So health at every size or haze aligned healthcare, because health at every size gets a bit of a mouthful if you're saying it repetitively. I like Um, haze better than (laughs) H-A-E-S. Basically, it is a weight neutral approach to healthcare. So it's a philosophy and a clinical approach that recognises that everybody, uh, regardless of shape or size or gender or any other aspect of their identity, much which might make them diverse, is worthy of and should have a right to accessing quality medical care. Um, it also recognises that there are lots of ways that different patient groups can be marginalised by the traditional medical model of care. Um, and particularly the Hayes Health at Every Size model is focusing on the fact that people who live in larger bodies are often marginalised and that their access to healthcare can be limited because of that marginalisation and because of the fact that often when they enter into a clinical encounter with um, a medical professional, they might come in with a specific complaint but often the management plan or the focus of the consultation that they are having with the doctor will end up diverting down a pathway of talking about their weight Mm. and trying to convince them to lose weight and really making that the focus of the session that they have with the doctor. And given that weight is something that's such a emotionally loaded topic for so many people, there's lots of social and cultural stigma around being in a larger body, Mm -hmm. the fact that that social and cultural stigma can bleed into medical interactions and clinical interactions can actually make it really hard for people in larger bodies to access good care and to feel safe seeing a doctor um, and seeking medical help because oftentimes it just perpetuates a lot of that stigma and a lot of that shame that can come Mm. along with the messages we internalised from society around living in a larger body. Absolutely. And Portia, this is something that you're passionate about as a professional and a clinician, but also through your lived experience. Tell me, what did you imagine getting married and starting a family would look like? I've never been the very typical or traditional or stereotyped girly girl that is dreaming of marriage from a young age, but I did always know from a very young age that I wanted to have a family, um, that I wanted to have children of my own and hopefully have a partner that I could raise those children with. When I met my now husband, we both kind of recognised in each other quite quickly that, you know, we were the other person's person. (laughs) Then, of course, 2020 happened. Yep. COVID reared its ugly head. And so we found ourselves making the hard decision of do we put off our wedding so that we can do the wedding that we had dreamed of and planned together um, and be able to spend the day with all of our friends and family but an unknown future date? Or do we say, hey, we just want to really get married to each other and, you know, take the next step on our journey as a couple? And we ultimately decide to go with the second option and organized ourselves a very small registry wedding (laughs) with the two of us, the celebrant and one parent each, because that was the absolute limit of the number of people you can have present. And in terms of your vision for pregnancy and birth, did you anticipate a smooth journey into parenthood? Um, 
I guess in some ways I did in that I never really expected, I think this is the case for a lot of people who struggle with infertility, um, you just don't necessarily expect that it's going to be you that has that struggle. And then as we got engaged and started planning our wedding, we were getting more and more concerted in our efforts to try and fall pregnant. Um, and again, nothing was happening mm. months, month after month would roll around. And that went on for, I guess, really a couple of years before it seemed like the right time to actually start actively pursuing so, like fertility mm. um, support. Yeah. It's a, it can be a big decision to sort of recognise, hey, there might be something at play here and, yeah. and sort of take that first step. And as a doctor yourself, you would be the first to say that doctors don't always make the great, the best patients. Yes. And I'm, you know, a very classic example of that. So before I'd even, you know, gotten my referral to a fertility specialist, I'd already found a surgeon I wanted to go and see to investigate the endometriosis I suspected I probably had and um, organized, you know, to have a whole bunch of um, sort of fertility screening blood tests and ultrasounds and workup and things. I'm very conscious that as medical professionals, we often don't make particularly good patients. So I'm very conscious to make sure I've got my own GP mm. and who I trust a lot and um, went through the right sort of pathways to get the referrals and things. Mm. But I did try and kind of speed things along a yeah, bit by good on you. making sure I was doing a few things at the same time. Absolutely. And after two years of trying, that that's a that's a long time. And so yeah. absolutely that, that time to take that next step was there. Was your yeah. suspicion correct that you might have had some endometriosis? Yeah. So I was fairly certain that that was probably what was going on. I knew that my period symptoms were outside of the bell curve of norm, of the norm. And um, so I was pretty eager to get that investigation underway because mm. I knew as well that, you know, there was some good data to suggest that if you did have endometriosis and you had it removed, that your chances of spontaneously falling pregnant after that procedure were a lot higher for, you know, the six months to a few years after having the surgery done. So I was really hopeful that that was kind of going to be the magic pill of the process yeah. that having that surgery would clear out the endo, which it did. Um, and that then things would just fall mm, into place. Yeah. After trying then to get pregnant for several more months and not having any luck, what was your next step? So around the same time as um, seeing the surgeon for the surgery, we also had our first consultation with the first fertility specialist that we saw. And I brought up... From quite an early point in our consultations and from the first consult with her, uh, I brought up the possibility that we might need to go for IVF and what the process would look like if that were the case. And because of obviously my medical background, I already had the knowledge that it's common for there to be um, certain criteria that patients are expected to meet in order to access IVF treatment. And I know that one of those criteria for a lot of specialists is based on BMI. Um, so knowing that could be an issue for me because I myself live in a larger body, I 
brought that up with the fertility specialist and tried to sort of ascertain what her thoughts and what her position was when it came to offering fertility treatments and IVF, particularly in someone who is larger bodied. And from the conversation that we had after I brought that up, it became quite clear that she wouldn't be willing to offer me IVF unless my BMI was below what it was at the time. And I also knew that from my history of being larger bodied and being through many, many attempts to change that, uh, as I think just about everybody who happens to live in a larger body has, I really didn't want to feel like I was having to re-engage with that approach to my body and to my health because I knew that for my body, trying to force it to be smaller didn't involve healthy changes. It Mm. involved um, quite unhealthy behaviours to try and force it to be different to what it naturally was. Um, And along with that has been periods of time where I've struggled with, you know, disordered eating and with obsessive exercise and with obsessive calorie counting and where like what I've put into my body and how much exercise I've done have consumed me. And yet that's purported to be the healthy approach in order to get healthy. It's the opposite. That's exactly right. I guess the other thing that was really challenging for me was that I'm also quite aware of what the data and what the literature does show and also what it hasn't been able to demonstrate. And I know that when it comes to fertility, there's not any data that demonstrates that people who happen to, you know, most of their lives live in a body with a higher BMI, if they force their body to have a lower BMI, there's no data to demonstrate that that results in better success with fertility with spontaneously falling pregnant or with fertility interventions. And I searched, I searched because obviously when you're, when you're someone who's, who lives in a larger body, you, you do, you are prone to that same kind of rhetoric and that same kind of thinking that if, if something's going wrong in my body, maybe it's my size. Maybe that's, maybe it's my fault. And even when you, have put a lot of work and research and clinical practice and clinical experience into undoing and unlearning those problematic messages. The hardest place to apply that is on yourself. I went and saw an endocrinologist with a specialization in metabolic diseases and fertility to see if she could find the reason why I wasn't falling pregnant and tell me, is it because of my size? And she couldn't find anything that would link it. So I thought that I was well-armed going into my consultations with fertility specialists seeking help Mm. um, because I had a lot of evidence to give to them. But unfortunately, that seemed to not make much of a difference. It seems that the fertility specialist that you saw, first of all, wasn't interested in any of this nuance or any of this individual detail. It was a black and white cutoff. BMI is this, which we know is problematic for so many reasons. Yeah. And you weren't an individual person with that individual story. You were just that number. That's right. And I think that a big concern for me with that lack of nuance was this sense that there was a bit of a wall up 
to listening to my my history and my story that was stopping this clinician from recognizing that for me being told to lose weight was actually something that was almost certain to result in unhealthy behaviors yeah um and realistically speaking when you're a doctor working in any specialty, one of the things that should be always in your mind is how can I help my patient? How can I help this person in front of me coming to me for support and for advice? How can I help them and empower them to make healthy decisions for themselves? And Portia, the other tenet of medical practice is first do no harm. And the treatment in inverted commas that was being suggested to you was clearly going to be harmful. Yeah, that's correct. And that's a really common refrain um, for me to hear as a clinician in the context of a lot of the work I do because in working in general practice, one of the areas of interest that I've found myself in, um, I do see a lot of people who are seeking a haze-aligned approach or a weight-neutral approach to their care. And it's, I don't want to say astonishing, because it's actually not surprising. It's not surprising at all to anybody who does live in a larger body because it's such a usual and typical experience. But it is disappointing to hear time and time again really consistent commonalities in those stories. A lot of the patients that I work with who are in larger bodies have really significant histories of eating disorder as well. And yet in a lot of their past experiences with clinicians have actually found themselves being encouraged in their eating disorder behaviours because it's resulting in weight loss. And if you live in a larger body, there is just still this belief that anything that results in weight loss is a positive. And so not only is this advice harmful, but the other striking thing about it is that it's bad advice. If we have got good evidence of anything in weight loss, it's that these techniques do not work. And we would never recommend a medication or a treatment or a surgery that we know is 95% likely to fail. And yet we do it time and time again. And that 95% number is, you know, pretty much the highest level of evidence that we can get from numerous studies Um, and from meta-analyses of those numerous studies, looking at various weight loss interventions, particularly behavioural weight loss interventions, um, they are consistently, astonishingly consistently successful to a point, but that point is very short-lived and very rapidly within the first couple of years of, um, of engaging with that weight loss intervention, 95% of people have regained all of the weight that they lost and oftentimes more than what their baseline was before they engaged with that weight loss intervention. This is like prescribing a medication that might work 5% of the time, but for some proportion of the 100% of participants engaging with it has really severe and life-changing side effects. Mm. Those side effects being, in the case of weight loss interventions, the development of eating disorders, 
severe negative impacts on mental health and quite likely, and obviously the the evidence base and um, the sort of data that we've gathered around this stuff is still in its early days, but there's a lot of emerging evidence that that weight cycling in and of itself is a huge risk factor for the exact long-term metabolic diseases and significant chronic diseases that we as a society have always associated with the dreaded O-word obesity itself. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it may not be so much that being larger bodied carries the risk, Mm. but that in fact all of this repeated attempt at forcing your body to be different might be a big contributor to that risk of developing serious illness. Yeah. And the other big contributor that we should point out is the impact of the bias itself, that living in a world where you're constantly discriminated against based on your appearance by not only members of the community, but friends, family, and your trusted medical professionals, yourself excluded, Portia, but the majority of of medical professionals are not up to date with haze aligned principles. And we can see it in other studies of things like racism in medicine, living in a world where you're discriminated against causes bad health outcomes. And also the effect it has on, on people understandably not turning up for their next appointment if they've, if they've been treated poorly and um, judged. Waiting longer to go and see a health professional when you have symptoms because you've had so many bad experiences in the past and you're expecting that when you go in with your symptom that could be a sign of something really serious uh, that your doctor's probably just going to tell you, oh, go and lose five kilos, 10 kilos and come back and we'll see if that symptom's still there rather than investigating it appropriately. So it's, it's very true that the access or the lack of access to quality healthcare for people who do live in larger bodies probably plays a much bigger role in their risk of illness in the short and long term than any other um, metabolic or biological or genetic determinant that's impacting them. And that's pretty solemn stuff to be considering that we as a profession are contributing to pretty horrendous health outcomes for large, large proportions of the population. Yeah, absolutely. I think that objectively is the case, but it is not accepted in the medical community. We're on the pathway towards recognising that that impact yeah. of our prejudices and our biased biases, whether they be conscious or unconscious, but we're not there yet for the majority. That's very true. Mm. I find it very heartening to see that a lot of the kind of newer generations of medical students and trainees that are coming through are a lot more open and aware of these additional vitally important impacts on health and a lot more conscious that they, that those are things that we need to be aware of as clinicians and trying to factor into our assessment and to our management plans with patients. Mm. But the system as a whole and the structures that are inbuilt within that system are not reflecting that at all yet. But I do feel like we are starting to head in that direction. So, Portia, after being told this, you know, really heartbreaking news that it would not be considered 
looking yeah. at giving you IVF for your anatomical fertility problem, you know, of a blocked tube and endometriosis that, that really we know IVF is the treatment that you need. Did you then look around to see what the other options were and whether you would find someone more open to treating you appropriately? Yeah, I did a bit of research within, I live in Sydney and obviously Sydney is, you know, you're very lucky living in Sydney being a tertiary centre of care for so many conditions with so much access to to doctors and specialists. So I initially used my contacts in the medical field to try and search around for someone locally who might have a different approach. Um, and I was recommended a fertility specialist who worked in a nearby suburb. Um, and I went and had a consultation with him and it was probably 10 times worse than the consultations I'd had with the previous fertility specialists in in a lot of ways. I arrived for the consultation and I explained the story to him and, you know, we were sitting in his office and some comfortable couch chairs and having this, what seemed to be a very collaborative discussion between doctor and patient, but also people who recognised that they were talking as professionals to each other. And he was nodding along and, you know, sounding really encouraging. And and we got to the point where it was sort of the, the crux of the matter. So will you offer me IVF if it gets to that point? And his response was, oh, look, you know, if it was up to me, if it was up to me, um, 100%, there wouldn't be an issue whatsoever. But it's not up to me. We, we work in a team um, at this fertility company and obviously, you know, I'm the person who does the egg collection procedure, but when you go in for that egg collection procedure, you need to be sedated for it. There's an anaesthetist who does the sedation. And you see the, the anaesthetist, they set these limits um, for safety, for anaesthetic safety. And I said, yeah, okay, I understand that. But I said, look, I've actually had a general anaesthetic earlier this year. They didn't even need to consult with me prior to the procedures to sort of determine my risk. I wasn't considered to be a high risk at all. Uh, There's no difference in my body size or weight between then and now. Um, Do you think maybe there might be an option of me having a consultation with the anaesthetist before moving forward with treatments then? Obviously, other anaesthetists have assessed me as being safe so if I were to consult with your, with your anaesthetist, maybe they'd be able to do an assessment of me as a person mm-hmm. rather than just looking at a single number and saying that that's representative of my health and my health risks. And he went, oh, you know what? I guess we could see. Let's send the anaesthetist an email right now. So he sat at his desk and he typed up an email and he goes, oh, what's your weight? And I hadn't weighed myself for know, probably a few weeks. So I gave him my best estimate based on the last time I'd weighed myself. And then he asked what my height was and I gave him my height. And that was very, I knew I was correct with my height because I'd actually been to see another specialist um, a month prior who'd, as part of her examination, had checked my height. And he types them in and sends off the email to the anaesthetist. And within a few minutes, he gets an email back and he goes, oh, oh, look, the anaesthetist has said that, oh, that puts her BMI at 36. That's fine. Not a problem. 
And he sort of looks a bit befuddled by that. Um, who are we going to? Who are we going to blame now? I wonder. Exactly. Like, where, where do I go from here? Oh yeah. gosh. He goes. Oh well. You know what? You know, I think we'd better just check that we gave him the right numbers before we go any further. So okay, let's just let's just check your weight now. So gets me to step on the scales fully dressed because that's such a great way of getting an accurate weight on someone in the middle of winter wearing like heavy boots and a jacket. He looks up at me. He has this sort of condescending, sympathetic expression on his face. And he goes, hmm, yeah, that's not quite the number you told me, was it? Yeah. So it's, I think a couple of kilos, maybe three kilos higher than the number I'd guesstimated for him. And... Then he looks at me a little bit longer. He goes, looks me up and down. He goes, and I don't, I don't think you're 175 centimetres tall, are you? You don't look quite that tall. So he takes me back into the consult room and we sit back down. He goes, hmm. So look, you know, really it's just three or four kilos to get to that point so that your BMI is, I mean, what the anaesthetist has said is okay. Um, so, you know, just three or four kilos. So I looked at him and he's telling me just three or four kilos. And I said, well, but you've also told me that I could expect to gain at least four kilos in fluid weight. So in order to make sure that there's a buffer for that four kilos, plus these extra kilos that these scales apparently show, because we all know that different sets of scales are exactly accurate and titrated to the exact same weight. So really you're telling me that realistically, at least eight kilos probably tend to be safe. So there's a buffer is what I have to lose to be able to have this treatment. And he just looked at me and went, yeah, but that's okay. That's not much, is it? And it just became very clear that all of that kind of camaraderie of the conversation that we had previously where he nodded along and, you know, complimented me on how healthy my lifestyle was and said, oh, you know, you do so much more exercise than I do. Oh, yeah, no, I totally get it. All of that discussion that had made it sound like he was on the same page that he understood that he got it was was meaningless. Portia, I'm so sorry you had that experience standing in a busy waiting room, having your body and your own knowledge of yourself questioned like that and treated in that way, it must have felt so condescending. Yeah. Condescending is probably one part of the complex, awful feelings mm. that that experience brought up for me. Um, shamed, stereotyped, treated as not a whole person, but as a set of numbers, a set of numbers that apparently are still being used, and we know this, still being used fairly universally as a proxy for measuring someone's health. Mm. And I knew, I knew that those numbers were a terrible proxy for health. I know that, um, I've based a huge amount of my clinical career on that knowledge and on the care I provide to my patients with that knowledge in mind. But 
it's remarkable how quickly all of that knowledge and all of that experience can be undermined when you talk to a professional that you're seeing in a very vulnerable state about something that's already very emotionally loaded and they just reduce you down to those numbers again. Yeah. It's profoundly awful. And in our modern society it's often said that discrimination against groups is widely acknowledged to be unacceptable and you know efforts are made to stamp out racism and sexism etc whenever we see it of course it still exists but we all know that it's unacceptable yeah. it seems like the one of the last isms our prejudices that we still have to fight against is this obsession with BMI and it seems to still be completely acceptable to openly discriminate against people based on that. Yeah. And it's, there's, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that a person's size is still framed as something that is under their control and that is a choice. I think that the majority of people out there and the majority of people suddenly who'll be listening to this recognise very well that people don't get to choose their ethnicity, they don't get to choose their social situation, they don't get to choose their circumstances of birth. But there is still a very pervasive belief that we get to choose what size we are, that size is something that we can control through healthy living, quote, unquote, and The simple fact is that that is just not true Mm. and we know that's not true. We have all of the evidence to demonstrate that that is not true, that the various complex factors that contribute to a person's size, the vast majority of those factors are completely outside of their control. And we know, we have certainty in the evidence that all of these supposed behavioural interventions that we have parroted on about as health professionals for many years now, calling them health interventions but really them being size interventions, do not work. We can certainly have an impact on people's health outcomes by looking at factors such as diet and exercise. That's indisputed. But... The evidence base that supports exercise and that supports dietary interventions, if you actually look at the data closely, supports those interventions independent of effect on body size, completely independently. And when you control across BMI categories in terms of risk of morbidity and you control for or healthy behaviours, the difference in morbidity between lower BMI and higher BMI actually equalises. Having you explain 
the science or the clear lack of science that associates just a number BMI with health and our clear sociological obsession with it as opposed Mm. to a reasonable medical obsession. Then picturing you, Portia, being told that you cannot have this treatment, which is not a minor treatment. It's We're literally talking about the difference of being able to be a parent or not a parent. For many people, that's the most important thing that they can imagine. And having this clinician dismiss your individual nuanced conditions in almost a way that seems to say, oh, I'm, I'm I'm doing you a favour, I'm, I'm, I'm saving you from yourself. That paternalistic approach, it mm. makes me so angry just sitting here hearing you talk about it. Yeah. And on, on my better days, it makes me really angry as well. Um, when I was in a pretty vulnerable position myself being the patient, not being the clinician who's trying to help support her patients, um, there was definitely anger in there, but it was a pretty pretty heavily blanketed by sadness and shame and desperation. Yeah. So I was really in a pretty pretty rough place. It yeah. took a really big toll on my mental health. Um, I ended up needing to see my GP for mental health support, um, starting on an antidepressant medication to manage the anxiety I was dealing with, going through all of these health challenges and feeling like I probably wasn't going to be able to have a family. It essentially felt like I was being told that I wasn't worthy of having help to have a baby, that I didn't deserve to have a family of my own because I was a fat person. This story has a happy ending. Tell me how you came across a more open clinic. Part of my learning and professional development in becoming a Hazeline clinician, I found my way to a Facebook group of other like-minded Hazeline clinicians from various different specialties. So um, a lot of dietitians and psychologists, a number of GPs like myself, and a few others from different specialties, a few pediatricians, some endocrinologists, and a grand total of one fertility specialist. It only takes one though. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Unfortunately, that fertility specialist was not in Sydney, um, but in Canberra. Uh, and I'd sort of interacted with her a little bit on the Facebook group. Wasn't really sure if that was, you know, something that she would be comfortable with seeing me as a patient, given that we had that connection on that Facebook group, but thought, what's the heck? What have I got to lose at this point? I'm going to send her a message. And she responded very positively um, with a, you know, of course, I would love to see you as a patient. That would be my pleasure. So I was actually able to do all of my consults um, initially with Uh, that specialist via telehealth. And the difference in our consultations from the outset was profound. It was the first healthcare interaction that I'd had with regards to my fertility that was wholly positive. I felt that 
you know, the way that she communicated her thinking and her reasoning around the approach that she wanted to take, the discussions we had around my health at baseline, around um, the, you know, treatments and things that we tried so far around the additional things that we could do, all of that stuff was really honestly and appropriately collaborative. When the topic of IVF came up, it wasn't even a question of whether I'd be able to access that. It was it was actually her saying, look, I think, you know, if you don't want to be pushing straight to IVF straight away, these are the things we can try first. Um, but I do think there's a strong chance given your particular circumstances in terms of your fertility and what we suspect is the main problem that you will need IVF. So when you're ready for that, we will do IVF if it hasn't happened otherwise. How did it feel to hear those words that that you could be offered this life-changing treatment? It felt like I could breathe properly for the first time in more than a year. Mm. It felt like I had just a weight off my chest in terms of I was actually seeing someone who was going to help me who was going to do everything in her power to try and make sure that I could have a baby, that I could do the thing that I'd wanted since I was three years old. And so we kind of made the decision together that we would start with doing some more ovulation tracking and supporting that with some additional things like supplementing progesterone and things. And then give that another few months, um, take a break over sort of the Christmas period and come back together at the start of this year and see where things are at. If, if things had, you know, happened to happen by themselves, wonderful. And if not, then we would plan ahead and set a date for getting started with the IVF. So we followed that plan and didn't have any success in falling pregnant. So we followed up at the start of the year and we booked in for our first cycle and I had my embryo transfer in April and I'm now, as of today, 19 weeks pregnant Amazing. with my first baby. First embryo transfer. Oh, first embryo transfer. You, you, you just needed the technology. You just needed someone <laughs> to help you. Yeah. It was, I mean, I... I am acutely aware of how incredibly lucky and blessed myself and my husband have been that that it did happen in that first round. I mean, I was very prepared for that not being the case at all, for us needing to have multiple rounds um, because I've, you know, I've supported patients of my own through that journey and I know how how long it can take and how challenging it can be. Um, but after the journey that we'd already had to get to that point, I feel like so much of the emotions of the journey had happened even before we started the IVF, which is crazy in itself because IVF for any, any listeners who've been through it, they would know very well is incredibly draining and such an emotional roller coaster in terms of the highs and the lows and the hopes and the anxieties and all of that. It's been such a relief and such a joy and I guess in in a way as well there was a bit of 
a sense of almost validation mm. when we got our, preg- our positive pregnancy test, this sense of, yeah, okay, my body is able to be pregnant. It's not that I'm fundamentally flawed in some way or that there's something wrong with me that I'm responsible for. It really has been an explainable infertility, an infertility from a very clear anatomical factor um, of, you know, my tubes not working. And we really did just need that support and that treatment and that help. But it strikes me that anyone else without that medical knowledge and without those connections and without that ability to be so tenacious and and travel interstate and, you know, everything that you sacrifice to to make it to that one person. Without that, you you would have just taken that on board that your body was wrong and that you couldn't have a baby. I mean, even even with that, I was taking that on board. And even with all that privilege, it was a really, really hard journey for me. I can't imagine how much more horrendous Mm. it must be for people who don't have access to, I mean, I think I can imagine to a degree how much more challenging and troubling it is. Fundamentally, the fertility specialists that I had my earlier interactions with didn't understand and Mm. couldn't grasp that I think honestly I mean I don't think that either of those fertility specialists felt like they were discriminating against me I don't think either of them felt like they were like explicitly judging me I think probably they both believed honestly that they were helping me that I just didn't realise that my size was making me unhealthy, that I just needed more motivation. As I said before, it was like there was a wall up and there was just an inability or a lack of desire to engage with the possibility that maybe size and health weren't inextricably related. Portia, your story and your experience is not unique, sadly. It's incredibly widespread. And there's women and people who want to be parents in their hundreds, if not thousands around Australia who are experiencing the same sort of prejudiced consults that you went through. Yeah. This type of weight bias is going to age very, very badly, whether it's, you know, 10 years time, whether it's two generations time, we as a profession will get better, our understanding will increase, we'll look back on this overt bias of refusing to offer someone standard life-changing medical care based 
on solely a objective, very questionable number, we'll look back on it in horror and say, how did we treat people like that? But we're not at that place now and it's it's people like you who are on the frontier, both no. as someone who has that lived experience but then someone who's in that position of power to take one tiny step at a time to change that reality and I thank you so much, Portia, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. It'll resonate with so many individuals and hopefully a lot of clinicians as well who are listening. And I hope that we can work towards that day when the experience you've described is impossible. Thank you, Cara. And that's my deepest hope as well, that... That journey to becoming a world and a medical system that is not discriminating in the care that we provide to people based on any characteristic of that person at all, where that care is consistent across the board and where people are feel safe to see their doctors. I really, really hope that we're on the right path. Portia, I wish you all the best for the second half of your pregnancy. I'm so excited to hear who's coming along and how it'll all go. We definitely will need a baby photo to share at the end of it. Definitely. Best of luck and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Carol. That's it for today. If you got something out of this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and review our podcast. Also, we love hearing from you. If you have feedback or suggestions, email us at pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or you can find us at pregnancyuncut.com or on Instagram. If you or someone you know wants to share their story with us, we'd love to hear from you. Talk soon.